Our Father and our God, we come to this portion of of our time this morning, Lord. We are anticipating uh, opening your word and hearing your message preached. And Father, I pray, God, first of all, for myself, that you would uh, take over my mind and my mouth, Father, in a way that I would be able to clearly and truthfully proclaim your word. And I, God, this morning claim the promise that you have given us, that your word will not go out void, that you send it out to accomplish what you have for it to fulfill. Father, open our hearts. Give us ears to hear uh, your word. And Father, we pray also for uh, the ministry of the word in our community. We pray for the churches in our community this morning, that they're being faithful to the gospel, or that uh, people, uh, your people uh, are hearing your word afresh this morning. And Father, we just pray for the continued uh, growth of our church and uh, the, 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 the growth in, in, in spirit and in faith of our people here, Father, that we are growing and becoming more unified, more loving, uh, Father, because we know that as we were challenged this past week in the messages we heard, Father, the kingdom of God is growing and that we are actively a part of the citizens. We are citizens of your kingdom, Father, and there there is much for us to do, Father, and give us the grace to not be the person who hides our light under a, a, a under a lamp, our lamp under a bushel, Father, but that we we put it out forth and for everyone to see, so that it may bring glory to you in uh, in, in this area. And Father, we just ask for your grace to be upon us, Father, to always see every second of every day as being uh, a part of our uh, uh, of what we have to do in your kingdom here. This is not it for us today, Lord. This is the culmination of our week, Father, that we come together uh, to sing songs. Uh, Father, to praise you in song, to hear the word read, uh, to pray, uh, to be discipled, and to hear the word preached, Father. But this is our this is our culmination. But Father, we are coming here to rejoice for this past week, and we are coming here also to be sent out for the week ahead, Father, that we might be your instruments in this king in this area, that your kingdom and your gospel might go out through us. Bless us to be that type of church. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. You would turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is where we will be today. We've been a couple of weeks away from 1 Corinthians, and so as we, when we left last time, we had ended chapter 4. And um, as you have, as we have seen, that really the Apostle Paul, up to the end of chapter 4, was dealing with. Uh, an issue in this church uh, over division, over leaders, and uh, an, a, a wrong understanding of biblical wisdom, uh, trying to apply human wisdom to their lives as opposed to the wisdom of God, and not understanding that it is the wisdom of God is that Jesus Christ has been crucified, and that is the power of God in their life. And so, uh, as we as we talked about early on, this church had many different problems, and Paul had been dealing with uh, one of the first and main foundational problem that they had was a wrong understanding of wisdom. Well, now we will transition today in chapter 5, and we're going to see where he begins to tackle a different problem, a problem that has been in this church. And, and as I've studied this out and as I, as I understand 1 Corinthians, in my opinion, and you may disagree, but in my opinion, this is probably one of the worst problems they had. If, it not, if, it's, not, if, it not, if it's not the worst, it's in the top three. Uh, this issue of, of sin in the body. And this is what we're going to be spending the next uh, two or three weeks, probably three weeks on as we go through this chapter 5 uh, to look at this issue that Paul is dealing with. The title of today's sermon is called Discipline in the Church. And uh, our key words are sin, discipline, 
and removed. I want you to be especially careful in, in listening and in, in engaging your minds over the next few weeks because there's a lot of stuff here that God would, would have us to learn. A lot of these things we know, uh, but there are things that we always need to be challenged with, and this is an area that Paul was very serious in this church, and it's very serious in the church today. And so we need to, take, to be very careful uh, that, we, that we engage ourselves in, in our minds in understanding what the Word of God has to say about this. And hopefully this will begin some discussions amongst us, not just in, in hearing me preach to you, but you dialoguing back to the pastors and us dialoguing about this. And, and we want to create that type of atmosphere <coughs> on any given week, that, that, the, that the message that we are preaching from the pulpit is really the central message uh, that we're focused on at that moment that God has for us, and that is what God has for us in the life of our church. And so we encourage you, all of us, uh, all the pastors encourage you to be, to be dialoguing about this, to be calling us up and, be, and texting us during the week and asking us questions and um, challenging us about things. That's, we love that type of stuff. And I will return your text, uh, even though Scotty doesn't think I will. I will get to it if, if I have time. <laughs> Just limit it to two or three a day. <laughs> no. Um, so today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter, but we're going to be focusing on the first five verses today. So let's, let's begin reading in, chapter, in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so we see here clearly that the Apostle Paul is dealing with a very serious issue here in the church. And the first thing we're going to look at this morning is what is this thing that he's doing? What is this issue that he's bringing forward here to the church? And what is he asking them to do? Uh, we all know, we've all heard the term church discipline, and uh, we're going to look at that closely today to see exactly what that's about, and uh, hopefully challenge you to look at it in a way that maybe we, we seldom look at it, and, and, and to see it in a light that the Bible sees it in, 
and maybe not so much the world or the confusion of the church sees it in. And so the first thing I want to look at there in verse 1, let's look at the offense that's, that's brought this action to bear, that's brought this uh, rebuke from the Apostle Paul. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Uh, that word sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's where we get our, the English word porno, pornography. Uh, it, it, it was a term that really uh, encompassed any, so, any sort of sexual, uh, sexually diverse sin, any sort of type of sexual immorality. And so it was a general term. But he's saying here that, that, that that's what's reported that's going on. And, and I want you to notice the first thing he says. He says it's actually reported. This is not something that Paul just heard from one individual. Uh, the, the way the Greek is laid out there is that it is, it is widely known, it is widespread that this is, this is going on. This is not something that just a few people know or that this man is engaged and I've caught wind of it. He's saying it is actually reported, it is well known amongst the church of Corinth and even the city of Corinth uh, that this is going on, that this, there is sexual immorality among you. And he says and it's of a kind that's not even tolerated even among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. A man has his father's wife. Um, and so what's going on there, that's not his mother. Uh, so because when the Bible talks about his father's wife, generally it's talking about uh, the, the wife, either the man is remarried, his, 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 the, the guy's mother has died, and he's remarried to another woman. And so what's going on here is this young man is, is uh, having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And so uh, he's saying that, that this is a serious matter. This is, this is something that's not even tolerated amongst the pagans. And that's got to be a slap across the face of these, this church in Corinth. Because remember, this city was a pretty wicked city. Uh, they, they had no problem with sexual immorality. They had, a, they had a, a, a temple there of Diana that had thousands of prostitutes, temple prostitutes, that were there to service the people who would come to the temple. And so they had no, absolutely no qualms or problems with sexual immorality. But here, they have a problem with this type. And so, so they have, the Corinthian church has a serious problem here because obviously the Jews would have looked at this as bad because God says all the way back uh, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and Leviticus that a man shall not sleep, shall not have a sexual relationship with his stepmother or with, a, with the wife of his father because he is uncovering his father's nakedness. It was unheard of amongst the Jewish nation for this type of thing to happen. But even more than that, it was unheard of in this pagan society. Here's, here's the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean, the city of Corinth, who, who says whatever happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. They, even them were saying this is not even tolerated among us. This is a wicked deed that this person is doing. And this is well known throughout the city. It's not just something that's, that's localized in the church and a few people know about it. The whole city knows about this. And Paul is saying here, he's, he's, a, he's, he's bringing this to bear. He's saying this is wicked. What you are doing is wrong. What you are doing is sin. And I'm not going to spend any time today really going through the sin of sexual immorality because that's really not the point of what Paul is doing here in this chapter. We're going to, in chapter 6, we're going to look at the sin of sexual immorality a little closer. But what Paul is doing here, the rebuke here is not towards this man. Now, Paul is saying that this is a terrible thing that this man is doing, but the rebuke is leveled straight at the church. He's saying it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. 
It's right there in, black, in plain sight. He's sitting in the pew with you singing songs on Sunday. He's giving to the kingdom. He's maybe even teaching Sunday school or doing something in the church. And this man is steeped in sexual immorality. And you guys know about it. It's clear you know about it. And then we see what Paul does in, in verse 2. He, he's really laying out what is the church's attitude towards this. He says, and you are arrogant. You guys are arrogant about this. We've seen this word before. It uh, it's really means puffed up, to be filled with pride, to be puffed up. We've seen it in chapter 4, verse 6, when Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. In verse 18, Paul says, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But he says, I will come to you and I'm going to see what the talk of these arrogant people are, if it's really just talk or it's power. And so these people had a problem with arrogance, and it's still coming out right here. He's saying, oh, you guys are arrogant about this. You're tolerating this in the midst of your own assembly. And most commentators believe that the way this is worded and the way this is laid out, it's not that they were just tolerating it. They were actually bragging about it. They were actually excited that they were a tolerant group of people. They were excited that they were open to, to the things that were going on around them. They weren't going to be to be judging this man. They were, they were following the world's principle of judge not lest you be judged. They were arrogant about this. They were bragging about this. They were saying, look how inclusive we are. We understand how hard it is for our city. Our city is steeped in sexual immorality. We all came up out of this. We all are struggling with this. And we're not going to make a big deal about that. We're going to tolerate that amongst us. We're going to let you come in and sing and be a part of our, our assembly. And we're going to be inclusive and tolerant and love you, brother. We're going to love you in the midst of your sin. And, God, and Paul is saying, you're not being loving, you're being arrogant. You're being puffed up. You're being too tolerant. And he says, aren't you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't you be mourning? I want to read a, a passage from the book of Ezra. Uh, we know, we know the, the, uh, the story of Ezra. Ezra is described and, and the people are coming out of captivity, coming back to, uh, to the land and, and, um, and some things have been going on since they've been in captivity that, that has come to, to, to pass. And Ezra's praying in chapter 10. He says, And while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehul, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Why is there hope? Because they're mourning over their sin. They're broken down for their sin. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin. Paul is saying here, why are you so proud and so proud of your inclusive attitude and your tolerance and your love of this brother? You should be mourning the sin. That's what true love for this brother should look like. God's people mourn over sin. God's people love people, but they mourn sin. And they mourn sin in the lives of other people. And so Paul is, 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 is just really slapping them across the face, trying to wake them up. Wake up, church. You are a light in this community. You are, you are put there by God. God has sovereignly placed you there and, and called you out of this darkness and put you there to be a different people, a people who's to his own special purpose. And you're calling these people out and you're, and, and you're not doing that. You're tolerating their, 
there's sin. You're letting it be a part of you. And we're going to see the effects of that later, probably next week, what that could be. But he's saying, you should not be doing this. This is unheard of. You have to turn from that. You have to stop that. You must mourn over this sin and not be loving towards this brother in the sense that you ignore his sin. And so Paul goes on to say, because you see the church's attitude clearly. You know, we're going to tolerate it. We're going to put up with it. We're not going to, we're going to turn a blind eye. We're going to smile at him. We're going, to, we're going to shake his hand when he comes on Sunday. We're going to ask him how he's doing. This is what we do, right? How you doing? How's your week, man? Blah, blah, blah. We don't really get into the depths of, of trying to find out what's going on in people's lives. And so that's the church's attitude. And Paul's attitude is saying in, in the end of chapter, in verse 2, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. What's Paul's attitude here? He's saying, I've already made up my mind. I'm not there. I'm not presently uh, in Corinth. I'm busy serving the Lord in Ephesus. And I've heard about this. I've got a report about this. And so I'm not like most Christians who have to go and pray about something uh, ten, ten years before I make a decision. He's saying, I have heard the report. I have seen what is going on. And I have made my declaration. This is wrong. And Paul says, even though I'm absent in body, I am present with you in spirit. And if there, I have already pronounced judgment. It's in the perfect tense. It's a done thing. Paul's made this judgment. He's already pronounced judgment. He's already decided what he's got to do. He doesn't have to go investigate it. He probably did investigate it somewhat, but he doesn't have to spend a lot of time. He heard the report, and it's widely known. He doesn't have to pray about it. He doesn't have to wait and see if the man will come around on his own. We do that, right? We tolerate people's sin and see, well, they'll come around. They'll let you come around. Paul is saying, no, this cannot be. What this brother is doing is terrible. And I have already pronounced judgment. And what was his judgment? He says in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so Paul is clearly giving them instruction on what they should be doing, what they should have already done. They haven't done, but now he's telling them, you need to set it right. You need to, you need to assemble. You need to, the church needs to assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus not in a worship service, but in a judicial sense, the church must meet and discuss this issue and pass judgment as I have already done. And he says, whenever you do that, you, you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he is present in spirit and in power of the Lord Jesus. I want you to flip over. Keep your fingers here. I want you to flip over back to Matthew chapter 18. your fingers in both places because we'll be going back and forth a little bit. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is talking in the context of uh, verse 1. He says, at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus begins to teach on, on what on greatness is like in the kingdom of heaven. And he, and he has this child that's brought to him and he said, this is what it's like, a person who has faith like this, a faith like a child. And he talks about the temptations of sin towards that childlike person. And then he goes on to talk about the parable of the lost sheep where the God uh, uh, leaves the 99 in the fold and he goes after looking for the one who's, 
who's wandered away, which a child will do. But then he goes to uh, verse 15, and, and he anticipates an issue that will come up. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by, for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are you gathered in my name, there I am among them. You see the same language coming out here. When you're gathered in my name. This is, not a, this is not a recipe or a verse that's pulled out of context to justify a worship service for two or three people, that Jesus will be in the midst of them. No, this Jesus is saying in the context of when a brother uh, has sinned against you and you're, tr- and you're trying to reconcile that, uh, when you're going through the steps that I've lined out, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, he's saying you are there in the power of Jesus. You were assembled in my name. The courts of heaven have already convened. Now I'm asking for the courts... Uh, in the church to be convened about this issue. And so uh, this is commonly what we all know. We've talked about this before, and we've, we've seen this in our church, uh, this issue of church discipline. And that, no, I know when I say that word, what happens in most people's minds? Oh, no. What are, oh, no, church discipline. That just sounds weird, right? It may even send shutters in, our, in, in people here because some of us have seen it seen it take place. Uh, but, but in our day, in, in the world, and even in the church, discipline is a four-letter word, right? It's not something we like. But I want, I want to challenge you with something today. I want you to see that discipline is not a negative thing. That's the main thing I want you to come away from the text today is to see that the issue of discipline, whether it be in a family, whether it be in a society, whether it be in the church, it is not a negative thing. It's a positive thing, and the Scriptures lay it out that way. And I think we have probably done, uh, uh, created the, the, the aspect of it being in a negative way because the church has, mis, uh, has abused it, misused it over the years, uh, and some, some ways outright rejected it. And so it has a negative connotation to it. But I want to challenge you to see that it's not that way. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30, Jesus says these words, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says also in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. And so you see, in both of these things, Jesus is teaching us, what does it mean to be my disciple? What does it mean to be a citizen of my kingdom? He's saying that you are a learner, which is what disciple means. And if you, if you notice, disciple and discipline are from the same root word in the Latin. It means to learn. And so discipline is not a punitive action to where we just go and remove people that are bad. Discipline is something that is used by God to teach, to teach people and so that people will learn. And we have to see that very clearly. I want to ask you this question. How many people in our church are currently under discipline? 
What would you say if I don't answer, don't shell it out, but just think about that. How many people in our church are currently under discipline? The answer is everybody. Every one of you and myself are currently under discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 14. The writer says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Why, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, it is in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And you see what he's saying there? Everybody receives discipline. All of God's children are under discipline. And the, and the church has always categorized this issue of church discipline in, to, in, in two ways. And it's really two sides of the coin. And that's what I want you to very, see very clearly today because we have to have both of them there for it to function right. This first issue is this positive discipline that's happening in the lives of every, every Christian. It's what's called formative discipline. This is the discipline of God, God upon us as we grow in faith. Clearly, the writer of Hebrews is saying here that all of you are undergoing discipline. It doesn't feel good. And it's not necessarily discipline because you've done something wrong. It's because God is taking you from faith to faith, from, from, from one level of maturity to another level of maturity. He's bringing things into your life. It could be through persecution. It could be through your own sin. It could be through nothing else other than you need to grow in your faith. We see examples in the New Testament of people who endured great things and terrible things in their life. Uh, and and the, the, the man who was born blind and the disciples said, did this man sin? No, he had no sin. He, he didn't sin. That's not the, he was a sinner, but that's not the reason he was born blind. He was born blind so that the power of God might be shown through him as Jesus healed him. And so we see clearly that every single individual Christian in his life are currently undergoing discipline. Because God loves us and He knows that the worst enemy that we have against us is, our, is the flesh, the world, and the devil. And so He's teaching us and taking us through the fire in order to, to weed out that dross, uh, that, 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 that bad impurities that, he, that, that like a silversmith does when he when he's, uh, has gold and silver in the fire. He's trying to heat it up in order to, to wipe away the impurities so that the gold will be more pure. And so God is saying here very clearly that everybody is undergoing discipline. It's, a, it's something that you won't because if you're not undergoing it, what does it say here in Hebrews? You're illegitimate. You're not one of His. And so if we're going through, if a person's going through life and he's never enduring any trials or tribulations or problems, then that's, that may not be a good thing. We don't go looking for these things, but we know that they're present because God says 
Jesus says, in this life, you will have persecution. You will have tribulations. And so that's the, that's the positive aspect of church discipline. That everyone is undergoing it. Everyone is going through it. That's what we're here today. To be to grow. To be to learn. To be discipled. We're going through discipline today. Whether it be through Sunday school or in here or in your small groups or in your day-to-day reading through the Word or in your day-to-day interactions with other Christians. You're being discipled. You're being disciplined in the faith. And so that's the formative, the positive aspect of church discipline. But then we also have the other side of the coin, which is the corrective side of church discipline, because we all know in our life we do not do that perfectly, right? No one ever lives this life perfectly. There was only one who was perfect, and his name was Jesus, and we are not him. And so we need to see that from time to time we need that corrective discipline, and that's what the church is called to do. That's what Paul is bringing to, the bear, bringing to bear in this church today in 1 Corinthians 5, and that's what Jesus was teaching the disciples back in Matthew 18. When that must happen, how do you do that? What do you do? What type of attitude do you have? Before we get back into Matthew 18, let me just read a couple of texts. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What's the magic word there? Gentleness. Humility. Keeping watch on yourself because you too could be tempted. Don't be so high and mighty arrogant that you're above everybody. You, you look down on them and say, how could you ever fall into that, that sin? How could you do that as a Christian? You should be asking, how come I'm not doing the same thing he's doing or she's doing? And so he's saying, if anyone is caught in this transgression, you who are spiritual, and it's just a word to say, you who are a child of God should restore him in a spirit of gentleness and humility. And so Paul here is laying out for this church, there's a serious matter here. Apparently, formative discipline has not worked. Somehow or another, way back, something broke down in this man's thinking and in this church's thinking. And so Paul is saying here, you've got to do something about it. Now let's look back at Matthew 18 and let's look at how uh, Jesus lays this out for us. And then we're going to come back again to... 1 Corinthians. Jesus is laying out some steps for his disciples to follow. He's saying there in verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now remember at the beginning of this step, before we even get into this, we have this issue of self-discipline going on in the body of Christ, right? We are all responsible before God to be disciplining ourselves, to be watching over our own life, to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We, are, we you and me, are our first line of fence against our own sin. When that breaks down, we need help. But, but walking in day-to-day life, we are responsible for our own sin. We are responsible for, to be turning from our own sin and to be catching ourselves in sin and repenting and, and asking for God to forgive us and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. 
And so that's always presupposed at the beginning of this, that that did not happen. And so Jesus said, when something goes wrong, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's where it starts. When you sin against me or I sin against you, it's just between me and you. We, 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 we come alongside each other and we talk about it in a spirit of humility. We're, we're, we're asking for forgiveness. We're, we're confessing our sins to one another. And, and Jesus is saying that that's where it begins. And then he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Hopefully that's where it ends. And I think, by and large, that's where the majority of it does go start and end. In a well-functioning church, in a well-functioning Christian's life, we're constantly sinning against one another. I have sinned against every one of you in this building. I know I have. I have upset you in the past, and some of you have upset me, and some of you have upset others in this building. And so... Where does it start? It starts there. You can't always prevent that. We are fallen creatures. We have a sin struggle. We make bad choices every day. They are going to happen. The the thing is, what do we do with it when it does happen? Jesus says, He's not saying try to work, do all your your best work to try to prevent this as happen. He's saying, when it does happen, go to Him. Or He come to you and you talk it out. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That means if he listens to you, if it's, if it's worked out, if forgiveness is granted, if, if repentance is, is happening, if, if, the, if the issue's been reconciled and he's listened to you, you've gained your brother. Do you see the love language there? You've gained your brother. Everything's restored. Everything's back to where it should be. Your brother is in close communion with you again. And when, when, when brothers and sisters are in close communion with one another, God is glorified. But then he, then he presupposes and says, well, if that doesn't work, but if he does not listen, verse 16, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This comes back from the Old Testament. This is the way they laid it out in the law. When a, when a dispute was, uh, was brought forth, it, you know, a person couldn't just come up and say, well, so-and-so did such-and-such to me, and then that, that was a considered, okay, you're right, we'll just go ahead and judge it. It was not like that. You had to have witnesses. We see that in our own court system today. Nobody is pronounced guilty until all the evidence is looked at, right? We gather witnesses. And what's the purpose of all that? To establish the truth. You want to establish the truth, and that's what Jesus is saying here. It's not that you go take two or three others so you can gang up on this one person. These two or three people are objective witnesses that are coming in. They may not have witnessed the actual offense. They're coming in to see, okay, who, what, what's the attitude of, of, of these brothers going on here? What's going on here? It, did this person really commit this sin? And if he has, if he's not repentant, why is he not repentant? They're counselors. They're investigating this situation to see what is actually going on. So that in some way they might be a blessing to these two people to reconcile. It's not that just they're, they're there to gain gain some, uh, some, some facts to put down so that they can be called as witnesses later. Their main purpose at this point is to try to reconcile it right here, to stop the thing right here because we need help sometimes. But then he says, if he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And so here is where it gets a little more serious. These first couple of steps are what we, what we normally would call informal church discipline, where it's just one-to-one. The, 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 the cone of influence is very narrow. There's only a few people involved, namely the people who are offended at one another and maybe the two or three witnesses. Though they're the only ones who really should know about it. But now we're beginning to, the, the cone of, uh, of participation is beginning to broaden out. 
more and more people are being brought in. And so he says, tell it to the church. And, and Jay Adams in his book on, on church discipline says that he sees that, that stage as really two parts of a stage. The first thing you would do would be to tell the elders of the church. They, they probably would already be involved. But even if not, at this point, the elders will come to, to, a, to a place of understanding of what's going on. And they are entering into their pastoral authority to try to, 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 to solve this problem. And so if they would not listen to the elders, then what would you do? You would bring the whole church involved. And that's what we see going on here in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul is telling the church to assemble themselves in order to do what? To address this sin that this man has. And he's saying, when you were assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, this doesn't sound like the first couple of steps we've talked about. You know, what happened? Why, how did it get so bad that it's already at the point to where we're supposed to remove them? Because I didn't read this part in verse 17, but he says, Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? What did Jesus mean? What did the Jew think Jesus meant when he said these words to him? Well, who was, attacked? who was the Gentile? The Gentile was the pagan person, the Roman, the, the Greek citizen who was uh, in, in who knows what religion. Uh, he was outside of the covenant community of Israel. The tax collector was not. He was a Jew. But he was one who had thrown away his heritage for the sake of making money for the Roman Empire. He was the, the, he was the IRS agent to his hometown, to his community. And so, so we see there that both of these people would have been people who had not, would not be within the covenant community of the Jewish nation. And so when Jesus says that, if, if he refuses to listen to you when you bring it before the church and the church is calling out for this individual to repent of his offense and to be reconciled, Jesus is saying, then you have to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is saying, remove him from your midst. You have to remove the influence from your midst. And that's what Paul is saying back in chapter, uh, chapter 5. He says, when you're there present, when you're there assembled, and the power of the Lord Jesus is there, you are to deliver this man for, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What's going on there? What does Satan have to do with this? Well, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, I want to read a couple of verses that kind of tell you What's going on within the covenant community of, of the church as far as protection? He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Satan has a kingdom, right? He is the kingdom of darkness, and he is ruling and reigning his kingdom. He does not have absolute authority over God, but nonetheless, he has authority to rule in his kingdom, which is outside of the covenant community of God. And so God is saying there very clearly that when you are within the covenant community of God, there is protection. There is safety. But when you're outside of the community of God, there is not, because Satan is, is, is roaming around like a prowling lion looking for someone to pounce on. And so Paul is saying here that you need to remove this person from the assembly, remove him from your midst and deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. 
Now, what does that mean? How does Satan get involved with this? Does, does that mean he lost his salvation? Well, no, we know that can't be true because that's not possible. The Bible says very clearly that those of us who know Christ are held firmly in his hand. We cannot lose our salvation. I think the key is there is that he says he's delivering this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What is this man's problem? He's walking in the flesh. He's living in the flesh. He's not walking in the spirit. And so he's put out outside of the covenant community of God, outside of the protection and blessings of God, outside of the church, so that, so that Satan may be used as a tool of God to buffet this man's flesh, to buffet his sinful desires, his lustful desires that has driven, driven, taken him to a place to where he will have a relationship with his father's wife. We've seen this before. God has always, uh, throughout the, the history of Israel and even into the church, used Satan for times like this. We all know the story of the judges where the nation of Israel, after they had come into the land, they were constantly turning away from God. And what did God do? They would, they would, they would do what was right in their own eyes, the Bible says. And then, and then God would send a torment to them in some way. He would, use, he would use some nation or something else to bring torment upon them. And then they would cry out to God in repentance. And then what would God do? He would come in and send a judge to deliver them. And so we see him using uh, Satan and his kingdom and his kingdom forces to, buff, to buffet the children of God. We see it in the life very clearly in the life of Job. When Satan came to God and asked to, uh, to tempt Job, not because Job was, uh, had done any particular sin, but simply because he wanted to show the world that Job did not have the faith that God was saying he did. And so God said, you can, you can, you can do this to him, but no more. And then he, he allowed him to go up a little bit more. But every step, God had full control of Satan. And what was Satan doing? He was buffeting his flesh. But at the end of it, we see Job crying out and saying, now I know you in a greater aspect than I ever knew you before. And that's what God had intended all along, was for Job to grow in his faith. And he used Satan to do that. And so what's going on here is this is not just an issue of let's just get the bad influence away from us. Let's just get this guy. He's bad news. Let's get him away from us. Let's forget about him, throw him away, and we're done with it. That's not what Paul is saying here. He says, you were delivered this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so you see a heart there. Paul's heart is that this man will not be destroyed by Satan, but that he will be taught not to sin. And we see this also uh, very clearly in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Paul says, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's the purpose. Why did he hand Hymenaeus and Alexander over? They had made shipwreck of their faith. They were walking in disobedience. Sin had overtaken them. And he said he handed them over to Satan so that they might be taught, so that they may learn not to blaspheme. That is the purpose of what Paul is saying here that he, he intended for them to do. And so the issue that's going on here that I want you to clearly see this morning, because we're going to get into it next week in, in verses 6 through 9, a little bit more of why we have to do this. Why this is so important. Because of the permeating influence of sin and how sin overtakes people and how people need help. But the issue is, is that discipline is not a negative concept. 
It's a positive thing. It's really God's search and rescue plan. Because remember in Matthew 18, Jesus had just told them about the not, leaving the 99, going after the lost sheep. The, 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 this sheep had wandered away. He's a dumb sheep. He, he needs help. Sometimes the shepherds would have to go out and they would have to break the legs of the sheep and throw them over their shoulder and carry them for the, for the, for the time frame that it would take for them to, to mend. But the reason he had to break his legs is so the sheep would not wander off because he was a dumb sheep. And we're all dumb sheep. We all are susceptible to sin. We all fall into sin. And so Paul is telling us very clearly here in this verse, in this chapter, it's not the issue of just getting rid of this bad influence. That's not my point. The point is that you should be mourning over that this brother is in sin. If you love him the way you say you love him, you should hate the sin that he's in, and you should love him enough to make hard choices and to make hard declarations against him. You must go after him like the Lord would go after him. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've been a pastor here for over six years now, and we've had a few cases of, of, of corrective church discipline in our church, and I think we have messed up a few of them. We've done them wrong. Our intent was, was, to, was to do the right thing, but we've done them wrong. But the, the greater danger here is not that you might do it wrong. The greater danger is that you would not do it at all. Because that's what Paul is laying out to this, to this, um, to this church. He's saying, you are arrogant. And many, of the church, many in the church today have, have all, all but abandoned this concept of discipline in the church. You ever, you ever invited somebody to church and they said, well, I don't want to go to church. There's a lot of hypocrites there. Anybody ever had that encounter? We've all had that, right? And what do we normally say that? We, the, the hairs bristle up on the back of our neck and we want to get defensive and say, come on now, you know, it's not that like that. It's not, it's, there's not a lot of hypocrites. There are. In many churches, there are hypocrites in the church. You know why? Because as the church tolerates sin within its doors, then we are being hypocritical. A hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be what he's not. And so God is serious about sin in the body. He's serious about purity and holiness because He says in, in Hebrews, without that, we will not see the Lord. And so the greater danger here is that we not do this at all. And Jesus tells us very clearly in Matthew 18, and even Paul tells us right here, that when we're doing this, when we're having to do this hard thing, this messy thing, and I like... Uh, Brother Patrick's example when he was teaching on the peacemakers the other night. You know, the, the, the guy who's running across and he, and he dives across the finish line and just in the mud because it's just a messy race. That's what this is. This is messy. This is nasty. When we have to confront one another in sin and hold one another accountable, it's messy. We get scratched up. We get beat up. We get hurt. But it's necessary. We have to do it because purity in the body is more important than having a bunch of people who gather together to sing songs and tolerate sin in their life. Now, Paul is not saying that, that we're, we're looking to have a church that is sinless. Paul, again, Paul is the chief of sinners, right? And we are jockeying for his position every day, all of us, to have that position. We are the chief of sinners. And Paul is saying we're not looking for a pure church. Or, that's not possible in this now. 
The pure church comes when Christ returns, when we are shed of these sin bodies. And so we understand that there's going to be sin in the body, but when it's so blatantly there, you have to deal with it. And and remember this one thing. Church discipline is not about the actual offense of the sin. Church discipline is about the lack of repentance when confronted about the sin. That's what we discipline people for. That's why we hold people accountable. We all sin. The issue is, what do you do when somebody confronts you in that sin? Do you repent? Are you humble? Do you confess it and, 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 and be and restored back? Or do you, are you become arrogant and defensive and say, no, I will continue in this sin. I don't care what you say. That's where the discipline comes in. And that's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 18. If he refuses to listen, remember? If he refuses to listen, what is the church... What is he supposed to listen to? The church calling out and saying, you must repent. You must return from this sin. That is what is, uh, that is, what is, is discipline. And so I wanted to, to, to you to see that very clearly today as we continue to go through this chapter. That church discipline is a messy business, but it is a necessary business. We must be about it. We can't do anything about the other churches. Who either decide to or to to not do it, but we can control what we do, and we may be persecuted for it. We probably will be persecuted for it. I'll be honest, we will. And we've had to to tell other churches about members who had been disciplined in our church that they had been disciplined because we had found out that they were attending their church. I've got letters from churches asking for a transfer of letter of somebody we had discipline in the past and we've had to say we cannot recommend them for membership. Now that church is responsible before God for what it does with that. But we have to stand. We have to say what, that, that we are going to be what Christ, what we say we're going to be. We're going to be followers of Christ. We're going to represent Him to this world and when we do that, we better be doing it in a, in, with purity and holiness. It's imperfect, but it's our goal and our desire to be doing that. And so Paul is saying here that this, to this church at Corinth, they had not done this. And Paul went straight to the very last step. He said, I've already made a judgment. Get this person out. Because it was well known. It was a public sin. It was not able to go within the, the, the small amount of people, the one or the two or three witnesses or just the elders. It was, all, it was well known. It was widely reported amongst the church and amongst the, the city of Corinth. And so Paul is telling them, you, you've got to remove this person. And we're going to look next week at why they needed to remove him because of the, the permeating and destructive influence of sin. But I wanted you to be challenged this week, next week, and the next week after that as we go through this to be, to be serious about understanding what it means to, be, to have a pure church because that's what Christ wants. And if we don't want to, if we want to be able to look at that person who who says, "I don't want to go to your church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there," then you then you should be able to humbly and gently say, "Well, who who do you have in mind?" Because if you don't have a specific instance in mind, and if you mean we're all sinners, then yes, we are. We are all sinners, saved by grace. But you can have a way to answer that. But if you're tolerate, if if we tolerate people within the church who who have no, uh, no desire to live a life of holiness, then Christ's name is being drugged through the mud. And we are tolerating that. 
and we will be just like this church in Corinth. And so Paul is saying, don't be arrogant. You should rather mourn over this sin. Mourn over the fact that God's name is being drugged through the mud. That His name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles. Mourn over the fact that the witness of that church is being hindered. Because when we teach people that we are a different people, that we are, there's something different about us, when we, when we have those opportunities to give a reason for the hope that is in us, right? Then we're, we're, we're looking for those opportunities to show people why we are different, why we don't run with the world. But you have to be walking that too. You can't just be talking it. And so Paul is all about trying to get the witness of this church uh, back where it should be. But he's also, he loves this brother. It doesn't say his name. It doesn't, we don't know who he was. But he loves him. And he wants, he, he wants this brother to, to, to be restored from his sin. He wants him to see him turn from his sin because that is the best thing that can happen to him, is to turn from his sin. Because a life of sin will continue to grow uh, and become worse and worse for that brother. And I want to ask Ron, if you, where did our guys go? Put up the uh, church covenant. This is the covenant that we say to new members whenever we, whenever we install new members in this church. Everybody in here has probably said it once or twice or, or many times. But I, wanted, I want us to read through it again, not in the sense that we're installing anybody as a new member, but that we are, we are saying this to one another because look at what it says. Today we affirm the serious vow we are making with God concerning you. And to my other brothers and sisters in Christ, I reaffirm this same vow. Do you, do you catch that whenever you say that? Okay, this is not just about when we install new members that we're covenanting with them. We're recovenanting with each other. And this is something that we do over and over and over. Go to the next part. I covenant in Christian love with the help of Jesus Christ to watch over you, to pray for you, and to help you in any way that I am able. That's that formative discipline. That's that day-to-day uh, positive discipline that we're doing with one another. We covenant in Christian love. Jesus is there to help us, to watch over you, to pray for you, and to help you in any way. And I mean, do you see that? Are you struck with the language there that says that we are in a one another covenant with one another? That we are there to help one another, to lift one another up, to encourage one another, to assemble together with one another, to disciple one another? That's what we're here to do. That's that day-to-day, week-in and week-out discipline that happens amongst each other because we're all disciples of Christ and we're all learning from each other and growing from each other. And then the last part he says, And should you be found in sin, I will in the most tender and affectionate manner point you back to the truth of God's Word, so help me God. That's the corrective side of discipline. You need both. We need to be a church that's all about the one another's, who loves each other, who are accountable to one another, who are seeking encouragement from one another. But we also need to be a church that's willing to do the hard, messy work of going to one another and confronting one another when we're in sin. Not for the purpose of being high and mighty and looking down and saying, how could you do this? I could never do that. But going to them in humility, right beside them, knowing that you could, the roles could be reversed and they may very well be one day. But going in that, in that spirit to them saying, I'm here to rescue you. 
you're straying away from the flock. I'm here to rescue you, to search out for you and to rescue you. That's what we're saying. And so we have to take this seriously. We're not the police. We're not going to be riding by each other's houses and hiding each other's bushes and looking for things that we can find. But there should be an aspect of where we know each other so well that we just sense when something's not right. We see something's not right. We know each other that well. We are such a family of God that we know what's going on in each other's lives and our, our conversations go beyond the how you doing, how's your week, how's this been, how's that. Your conversations go deeper than that and say, how's your walk with Christ? How's your family life? How are your children doing? How are you spiritually doing? That's the conversations that we can have to one another to help each other in our day-to-day struggle with sin. Because we don't want to become the Corinthian church to where we tolerate sin because then we will cease to be a church. The church uh, in Thyatira in in Revelation chapter 2, I think it's uh, verse 19 or something like that, but just look, go back and read it in your own time. Revelation chapter 2, the the letter that uh, Jesus sent to the church in Thyatira. Jesus was commending them for being doing some, some, some decent things. But then he said, I nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who was secretly teaching people to live in sexual immorality. That's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. They were being tolerant. The buzzword of our day and in their day is tolerance, right? Love and tolerance. Who are we to judge? Judge not lest you be judged. Now, that's a right application of that verse, but the, but the wrong application of that verse is that we never judge each other. Because he clearly says in the, rest of the, in, the, in the latter part of this chapter is that we are called to judge one another. We are called to make those fair judgments of one another. And whenever we remove somebody from the midst, we're not putting them out and saying that they are not Christians. We're simply saying that you are currently not acting like a Christian. And we're going to put you out of our midst until you come to a place to where you realize you need to be acting like a Christian. You need to be living what you are. And that's what church discipline does. It removes the influence from the, from the body, which we will talk about next week. But hopefully, it's a restorative matter. That person, as God says here, will come back if he's one of his. He will come back. That's the glorious news of the gospel, that a person who, who, is, who is in a relationship with Christ, he will come back. And we have to be willing to let God do that. And so our prayer, my prayer for you today is that we will just see this. First of all, sin is a serious matter in the body. And that we are, we are each other's first line of defense, our defense against that. We are each other's accountability and each other's love. And if we're reaching out to do that, then maybe we won't have these situations like this church have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the instruction of your word. I pray, God, that our desire in this church is to be a church of purity and holiness because that is what you are. And we want to reflect you to this world. Help us, God, to do the hard work of weeding out sin in our lives. Help us, Father, to all be self-disciplined, to be turning from sin, to be turning towards holiness. And, Father, I just pray that that our, our testimony will always be that these people 
live what they say. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name we pray. Amen.